sitting down, I hope you didn't sit on your Easter invitation card. Uh, I told you each Sunday that we're going to give you a different resource, a different instrument to use to, to hopefully introduce people to Jesus, to see Jesus the way you do. You know, March is our reach month, two months a year to where we say as a church, we believe God put someone in our lives to help them see Jesus the way we do. Not someone, not someone in our lives so we can judge them, not someone in our lives so we can change them, it's someone in our lives that so we can open their eyes and, and be used to show them who Jesus is. So this week, I thought maybe an invitation to Easter, an entire service where we focus to answer on that question, who is Jesus? An entire an entire Sunday spent on that question. Perhaps an instrument you can use is inviting someone to join you and your family for Easter and maybe invite them over for lunch, brunch, breakfast, depending on which service you go to, where you can spend time talking with them about what Jesus has done in your life. Our, our, we, you know, we have a whiteboard, a canvas out front where so many of us have written one, one name of someone that we're, we're praying for that we believe God has placed in our lives for the purpose of helping them see Jesus in a clearer way. And we said every Sunday we're going to spend time praying for them, for those people that we're going to share with, and praying for us, that God would give us boldness and courage to step out and be the instruments of glory the way he desires us to be. Will you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, again, we are here. God, so many of us are here because we believe in your power. We believe in who you are and what you've done in our lives and what you desire to do through our lives. So God, we ask, God, in confidence and belief that you have put someone in our lives, someone we've already whined about gas prices, someone we've already complained about a sports team, God, someone who's waiting for us to say something about you. God, give us that name of one person. And God, I ask you, give us boldness, give us courage. God, give us faith that you can use us to transform lives and bring yourself glory. God, we ask now you use this next little bit. God, open our ears that we might hear your truth. God, open our hearts that you'd be able to transform them just a little bit more today. And God, open our mouths that we might be able to respond to you in the way you desire. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um... Have you ever woken up on the wrong side of the bed? Has there ever been a morning where maybe you have an hour less of sleep and your countenance is just not the way it's supposed to be? You wake up and unfortunately, because of the night before, you're just cranky or whatever, your wrath, your position, your anger gets taken out on some unsuspecting soul or object. Does that ever happen to you? I, uh, not really being able to recognize a time in my own life, I texted my three oldest sons, and I said, hey guys, I need help. Can you ever remember a time where I just woke up cranky and took it out on you in an unfair manner? My third son, I know, I opened myself up for it. My third son, Daniel, who from this day forward will be known as my most cherished and favorite child, responded to me and said, Dad, tell the church that you're perfect in every way and you've never done anything like it. <laughs> and as I was responding to Daniel, 
And sorry to all the teachers, this was during a school day, so I don't know what period he was in, but he was texting me back on his phone as I was texting him, you are my favorite child. <laughs> my oldest two, Andrew and Noah, started piling on. It's like, oh, you remember when dad did this? Oh, you remember when dad did this? And it just got to the spot I had to say, okay, something I can share <laughs> that won't get me fired or arrested. The reality is, I think we've all experienced it. We've all just had one of those days where we wish we could have over. Maybe we overreacted. We took out our struggles. We took out our fears. We took out our worries on some unsuspecting animal, child, object in the house. And if we're honest, if we could go back and do it over, we'd do it different. We've all had that. Do you think Jesus ever had that day? Do you think Jesus ever woke up just mad and just took it out on some unsuspecting object? See, there's some people who think that Jesus had that day. There's some people who believe the second day of the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus had that day. They just woke up mad and he took it out on some poor and suspecting people. In fact, one theologian even calls Jesus' actions during the second day a gross injustice and describes this encounter as a miraculous power wasted in service of ill temper. That Jesus just woke up mad and he took all his omnipotence and he took it out on some unsuspecting objects and souls. And if you're like me, you want to, well, what did Jesus do? Like, what did Jesus do that deserves such a reaction from theologians and people? And that's what I want to answer for you today in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11. What happened? Why did Jesus do it? Join me, if you will, in your Bibles, Mark chapter 11. While you're turning there, Mark, by the way, second book of the New Testament, second of four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel of Mark chapter 11. While you're turning there, I want to remind you about our sermon guides. Every sermon series we have here at the church, we have these sermon guides. Uh, Jeff, our discipleship pastor, works hard to write them. Our office staff and volunteers work hard to build them for you for two reasons. Number one so that you have a place to take notes and journal what God exposes to you on a Sunday. Man, if you're like me, sometimes people ask me what I preached about on Tuesday, and I can't remember. So this is a way for you to journal and remember what God stirred in your heart at this moment, so you can remember as things go forward. But we also fill it with introductions and questions because we believe if we truly want to be changed in the image of Jesus, if we truly want God's will to rule in our lives, we have to allow his word to work in our hearts more than just one hour a week. And so we have these sermon guides available to you in hopes that you'll spend time in God's word throughout the week, Monday through Saturday, allowing the truth of God to wash over your life. So uh, the last couple of weeks we've had them available as you've left. Last week we passed them out. Um, but just as a special thing for you today, we're going to, if you're like, oh man, I wish I had one of those sermon guides, just raise your hand and I will not belittle you on purpose. Um, my own wife needed one last week, so you have mercy and grace. If you would like a sermon guide, we have leaders, they'll come by and bring one to you. Just raise them 
Uh, raise them high, and one will be brought to you, a few here in the front. Um, and these are important because we're going to reference them later in the message. But now that we've got through that, let's, let's get into the text. Mark chapter 11, book of Mark, uh, right up front here as well, and over on the side over here too. A couple over here. Thank you, gentlemen. I think it's all gentlemen. So, um, Mark chapter 11. Here's what happened. This is how the second day began. It says this, on the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry, seeing, he meaning Jesus, seeing at a difference of fig, fig tree and leaf, seeing at a distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. From there he went to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And then he began to teach and say to them, it is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Then the chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy him for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went back to the city. The question is, you read that, you wonder what happened to the mild-mannered Messiah that led him to that, right? Jesus always had this reputation of being calm, cooled, collected. He's slow to wrath, quick to listen, overflowing with grace and mercy. Like, what happened? What happened to Jesus on that second day? See, you got to remember, if you want to know what happened on the second day, you got to remember what happened on the first. The first day we went through last week, we know it as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. That's where Jesus came in riding on a donkey and his followers, his disciples were laying coats on the floor so Jesus could ride his donkey over them and as a symbolic action saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're higher than us. Walk on us. We're submissive to you. We're under you. They wave palm branches in celebration. They cried out, Hosanna. Save us. Deliver us now. You're our Messiah. Make no mistake. They recognized Jesus as the Messiah, as the champion of God, but they misunderstood what he was about. See, they assumed Jesus was going to restore the kingdom of David rid them of Rome, restore them to a place of political power. But on that first day, after all the celebration, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he didn't go towards the palaces of man. He went to the temple of God. Remember that? Let's go back to verse 11. This is where we ended off last week, Mark chapter 11, with this very ominous type of feeling, right? Verse 11, look what it says. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And look what it says. After looking around at everything, after gazing at their worship, after peering into their hearts, after evaluating their souls, I mean, Jesus just stood in the temple and took it all in, looking at people, not the way we do. Right? We look at the outside, not God. God looks at the heart. He goes into the temple after looking around at everything. He turns around for Bethany with his disciples since it was already late. 
And that's how the first day ended. Jesus went to the temple, observed it, and left. And then the next thing we read in the text, Jesus wakes up hungry. And our question is, well, what does that mean, Brian? Like maybe he just overslept and missed breakfast and now he's hangry. You know that term, hangry. Hangry, from my hipstionary, someone who is bad-tempered or irritable as a result of hunger. He ran out of Snickers. Maybe Jesus just overslept, missed breakfast, and he's just having one of those days. But most people believe, no, no, no. Jesus observed something in the temple the night before. As he sat there and observed, he witnessed something that he struggled with all night long. And as was his custom, he woke up early in the morning to pray with his heavenly father about it. Jesus didn't sleep through breakfast. Jesus witnessed something in the temple that fired him up. And that's what I want to show you. Because I think what fired up Jesus way back then may still fire up Jesus today. Let's look. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. Let's read the first couple verses. So on the next day when they left Bethany again, walking back towards Jerusalem, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see it, perhaps if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Let's hit pause there for a minute. There's something you need to understand about fig trees. See, figs, I'm not a huge fan of figs, but figs, as I understand it, take an enormous time to ripen on the tree. And so fig trees, almost always, the fruit appears on the branch before the leaves. So if you want to look at a fig tree and wonder if there's fruit, you simply look for leaves. So Jesus, being hungry, stirred in his heart, he walks to this fig tree, and it appears as if it has fruit. It's false advertising. It has all these leaves. It looks healthy. It's boasting fruitfulness. So Jesus goes to the fig tree. It has no fruit. Jesus is angry as if he's angry with the fig tree for acting as if it would have fruit, for advertising as if it would have fruit, but it have none. And then we keep reading in the story, and it says this. It says he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. You're like, well, Brian, that's not fair. I mean, why would Jesus hold this fig tree accountable for not bearing fruit when it's not fruit season? Like, none of us go to angel games and expect to see the angels when it's not angel season. I mean, why, what? And here's the thing I think you need to understand. See, Jesus always expects fruit. Jesus always expects fruit. It was reminding me of something else that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy 4. Look what it says. It says, I solemnly, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to be judged the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. I mean, you know this is serious, right? 
from Paul. He's like, listen, I charge you. I am telling you in everything that's holy and everything that cared, that God cares about, he says this, preach the word. And look at what he says next. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Listen, Jesus isn't like the Lakers. You don't get to play like so many games and take the rest of the year off. No, no, no. In Jesus' view of ministry, there is no in-season and out-season. Jesus expects fruit all the time. Jesus expects fruit all the time. And so he goes to this fig tree that is boasting fruitfulness. It's false advertising. It looks like a healthy tree. It looks like a fruitful tree. I mean, it is giving off every inclination that it's doing what it's supposed to do, produce fruit. Jesus comes to it, doesn't find any fruit, and he says this, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And look over to verse 20. This is the next morning, the following morning after that curse. Verse 20, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered, withered from the roots up, dead within a day dead. Jesus comes to this fruit tree. You're done. I judge you. I curse you. You're dead. And look what it says about disciples. Look how it ends. It says this, and his disciples were listening. See, there's something else you need to know about fig trees. Not only does fruit come before leaves, but fig trees were also always, uh, often used as, as, il- uh, as illustrations and images of the people of God, of the nation of Israel. Almost like a barometer of their spiritual vitality. Oftentimes Israel was compared to fruit trees. And in times of blessing and obedience, when they were healthy, their fig trees were fruitful and they had these record crops and everything was amazing. But when they were being judged, when they were being cursed, when they were spiritually dead, Their fig trees were fruitless. So here's what I think. Jesus goes into the temple. He sees something. It bothers him all night. He wakes up in the morning. Hungry. Sees this fig tree and leaf. Expecting fruit because that's what fig trees do. When they have leaves, they have fruit. And Jesus curses the fig trees. And I think the disciples, they start listening. That term listening, by the way, means they were paying close attention. They were recognizing that Jesus was making a point and they were processing what it means. Okay, this isn't like Jesus is just flip out on a fig tree. What's going on? I think they're reminded of another parable, another teaching a story that Jesus told. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, one of the other Gospels, Luke chapter 13. Listen to what Jesus said. He began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. He said to the vineyard uh, vineyard keeper, he said, behold, surprise, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. That's the only fig tree. Hey, why do I have a fig tree here? If it doesn't produce any fruit, cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? It's a waste of resources. 
The vineyard keeper answered and said to him, the owner, he said, let it alone, sir, for this year too. Give me one more year until I dig around it, put in fertilizer, and if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. This is a teaching that Jesus gave early in his ministry. See, early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus went to the temple, watched it, turned over tables, chased everything out, gave this teaching. Hey, I'm coming. I'm looking at the temple. There's no fruit. Jesus ministered for three years. Jesus went back to the temple at the end of his ministry, the second day of his last week. You know what he found? A fig tree that was outwardly fruitless. A fig tree that was outwardly fruitless. It looks healthy. It's leafy. It's acting as if it has fruit. But it doesn't. Jesus, he's not hangry. He's righteously indignant that after everything he's poured in, that God has poured into the ministry, it's outwardly fruitless. Now, I got to tell you, sermons I preach, the first person that gets preached to is me. And as I'm preparing the sermon, I start thinking, oh, shoot. Brian, are you fruitful? Because evidently Jesus cares if you're producing fruit. Brian, are you fruitful? I didn't text my sons about that one. But I do want to pass that question on to you. Are you fruitful? This question has been ruminating in my mind for a week, and so I want to bless you with the same problem. Are you being fruitful? Because evidently, Jesus cares. And you might be thinking, well, Brian, I don't even know what that means. What does being fruitful look like? What does that mean for my life? How do I know if I'm producing fruit? So I want to spend a moment and help you understand that. There's two types of fruit from a Christian life. There's inward fruit and what I call outward fruit. There's inward fruit, fruit that God produces in our lives and outward fruit. Let me show you a teaching that Jesus gave. This is from the Gospel of John, John 15. It says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so it may bear more fruit. Continue, he says, you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. So abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See a recurring word and expectation from Jesus? He expects fruit. So what's that mean? What's that look like? Inward fruit and outward fruit. Inward fruit is what we may know and know as fruit of the Spirit. It's something that between our, it's that sanctification pro, uh, process, that progressive action between God and man that rids our life of more and more sin and fills it with more and more of the characteristics of Christ. If you have your Bibles, I want to show it to you. Book of Galatians, so put your thumb in Mark, flip over a couple books to the book of Galatians. 
book of Galatians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church of a region known as Galatia. They weren't the most jacked up church of the early church, but they had some issues. Jesus, or Paul, is writing to these Christians, helping them understand what God desires of them. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Here's what it says. Paul goes in and says, Now the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh, the product of the flesh, the outpouring of living life for myself are evident. And he says this, and there are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and then he says, etc. The Bible way to say it, he says, and things like these. Like, that's not the only list. There's more. You figure it out. You know what I'm saying? There's this fruit of life when we live it for ourselves. It looks like this. But then verse 22, big, huge, biblical but right there. Change of direction. But the fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Spirit in your life, the outpouring, the produce of the Spirit in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control, against such things there is no law. It's like rice cakes. Like the, just eat as many as you want. There's no limit. Have at it. Right? Just go. There is no limit. Just go all into those. Those are the fruit of the Spirit, man. You want to know? Brian, what does God want to see in my life? Fruit of the Spirit where God shapes you and changes you over time carves out more and more of your flesh and fills you with more and more of the characteristics of Christ. I got to tell you, God has used my four sons to teach me so much about who he is and so much about who I am. I've learned more about who God is through my children than I did in seven years of seminary. And I have learned more about my brokenness through the eyes of my children than I have through seven years of seminary, years of counseling, God has used my boys. See, I think one of the things that I, it breaks my heart and fills my heart with joy at the same time, to hear my boys, my two older boys, talk about the brokenness of their dad and how it impacted their life. Hey, I did my best. But I was still filled with the flesh. I'm not the immaculate creature you see today 24 years ago with Andrew. And to hear my two older sons recollect ways that I was broken for them 24 and 20 years ago. But now, see, I have two other kids. And to have my older boys say, oh man, dad, you're a better person today. Your anger is far less impactful. You're less selfish and greedy. See, my older sons see the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Now, I hate it that I didn't have that fruit the way that I needed to when my older sons were being formed, but I love the fact that they see God working in my life. 
My question, do you see the inward fruit being produced in your life? Where God is whittling away your greed, your selfishness, your divisiveness, your argumentativeness, where God is carving out the immorality of your soul and filling it with the characteristics of Christ. Jesus expects fruit. And he's expecting that our lives are changed little by little, day by day. Now I want to tell you, I grew up in a church where they preferred everyone look like a leafy fig tree. Where you almost felt like, oh, I don't, I'm not producing any fruit, but I'm going to come looking leafy just in case. Everyone's family was great. Everyone's lives were great. Everyone's children's were perfect. Everything was fantastic. Everyone was a leafy fig tree and no one cared about fruit. I want to make sure you know, this is not a place where you have to look leafy. This is a place where we want to encourage you to bear fruit. You know why? I get the feeling Jesus doesn't care if we're leafy, if we're not fruitful. So I just want to make sure you know, your kids aren't perfect. Welcome to the club. It's my wife's fault, but welcome <laughs> to the club. Your marriage have rough spots? That's okay. This is not a place where you have to be leafy without fruit. Man, Jesus desires fruit. But there's an outward fruit too. We're dealing with it all through Acts. The book of Acts, right? It began this way, Acts 1.8. Jesus said this, you receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, in part, so you will be my witnesses, proclaiming my glory. Part of fruit isn't just inward, it's outward. Part of being fruitful isn't just growing in the image of Christ. It's growing others in the image of Christ. First thing, Jesus, you don't know what he's upset about? He came in to search a movement. Found that it looked fruitful and wasn't. Are you fruitful? Because evidently, Jesus cares. First thing Jesus saw was outward fruitfulness. It was outwardly fruitless. But Jesus didn't stop there at that poor fig tree. He continued, look at what happened next, verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Jesus' mood did not get better after he took it out on that poor fig tree. Jesus went in the temple and he had what I call a temple tantrum. You like that? Temple tantrum. Heard it here first. Temple tantrum. And people have come in and said, oh, Brian, he's just wanting to purify their movement. See, there's something you need to understand. You need to understand about the temple at that time. It was full of corruption. If you have your sermon guides, you can look at page 33. That's the introduction for next week where Pastor Jeff goes into great detail on what type of corruption was going on within the temple practices. But 
Let me just summarize it for you. See, everyone had to come in with a, with a sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice. They'd bring it to the temple. It would be evaluated by the priest. The priest said, you can't sacrifice that. There's something wrong with that. So they'd put it to the side and say, you got to go buy another one. Don't worry. We have sheep for sale right over here, three times the cost. You also had to come in and pay a temple tax. But they don't, wanna, they don't want your U.S. dollars. They don't want your pesos. They don't want your yen. They want God bucks. They coin their own little money, and you can exchange it there in the temple at a gross injustice of an exchange rate. I mean, they were fleecing the people of God. Everyone knew it, but no one could do anything about it. During this time, it was also so crowded, they didn't want to mess up their area of the temple, so they'd spill into the Gentile area of the temple and mess up someone else's neighborhood so their neighborhood wouldn't be impacted of part of the temple. So people say, Brian, Jesus was going in so that he could just purify what they're doing. And I want to make sure you understand, Jesus isn't going to purify it. He was going to judge it. He was going to curse it. He was going in to kill it. And let me show you why. See, Jesus, to make sure that no one misunderstood, he, start, he goes in, he starts teaching, and he quotes two Old Testament prophets. Verse 17, he began to teach and say to them, it is not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, or is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? He quotes Isaiah. Let's put our thumbs in Mark. We're going to flip over to Isaiah. If you don't know where Isaiah is, it's fairly easy to find. You start in Psalms. Everyone knows where Psalms is. It's in the middle of the Bible. You start flipping to the right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You flip through that one real fast. Real fast. You don't, don't read that one. That's a joke. But now you're going to read it, and you'll know why I said that. Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah, God gives a picture of what he wants for the temple. Isaiah 56, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, preserve justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hands from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, surprise, I'm a dry tree, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. And choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to them and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. You get the heart of God. God says, I want everyone to come. I want this temple to be a beacon of hope. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you came from. I don't know. I don't care what you struggled with. You come here and commit your life to the Lord. You can commune with God here. And that's then after 
God says all of that through Isaiah. He says this, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus didn't go into the temple and say, oh, there's no prayer here. Jesus said, you've turned my temple into a nationalistic symbol. My temple is supposed to be a place where all of the world comes in unity and submission to the Lord. You've used it as an instrument of division. You care more about the mechanisms and protecting the institution of the temple and you've forgotten about your purpose. Jesus comes and says, God's desire has never been to fleece his people. God's desire is that this would be used to serve his people and to grow his people and to impact other people to become his people. Jesus uses Isaiah to help the people understand you have turned this into something that it was never intended to be. Been so busy with your mechanisms and your protection of it, you've forgotten the purpose of it. So then Jesus fixes it, clarifies it, and he says, and my house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but, big biblical but right there, but you have made it a robber's den, and he quotes Jeremiah And he's expecting you to know these prophecies. These are famous passages that people back then knew. The people here don't. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding. So hopefully you're still in Isaiah. Keep flipping to the right to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. Yeah, I'm almost done. (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 7. The prophet's writing to a group of people who who Sunday through Friday were living like hell, but it was all okay because they were going to temple on Saturday. They would murder, commit adultery, worship other gods, but then they would show up and expecting everything would be fine with God. Look at what he says, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, hear the word of the Lord and all of Judah who enter by these gates to worship. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Don't just trust that people are saying, God's here, God's here, God's here. Look at what he says. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, you do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I'll let you dwell here in the land that I give your fathers forever and ever. There'll be plenty of figs for everybody. But verse eight, behold, surprise, you're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you've not known, then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we're delivered? You're going to go and live like hell every day, Sunday through Friday, and then show up at church and say, ah, God doesn't care. Look at verse 11. Has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Jesus isn't coming in and quoting. It's like, look, God's mad that you're stealing from all his people, although I would say God is. He's saying what Jesus is angry at is that they think that God is okay with it because it's done in the temple. Hey, we're priests. God understands. We're God's people. 
God's okay with it. So you've turned it into a robber's den. You've turned it into a haven. You take all your ill-gotten gains and you protect it in this little enclave that God provided. So look what he says, verse 12, but go now to my place, which is in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Anyone know about Shiloh? Exactly. God's a done. And now, because you have done all these things, verse 13 declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I give you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brothers and all the offspring of Ephraim. God comes and says, because of your fruitlessness, because of your faithlessness, because of your corruption, I'm judging you. I'm cursing you. I'm cutting you off. You're like that fig tree. You're withered up from the roots. You're done. Make no mistake, Jesus didn't go into the temple. He didn't go into the temple to just purify their worship. He went to the temple to judge it and to kill it. Jesus came to accomplish what he came to do. Make no mistake, a number of days after Jesus dies, remember what happens to the temple that cuts off the presence of God with the priests? Ripped. Jesus came to eradicate a fruitless ministry and came to establish a fruitful ministry. Why is Jesus freaking out? Because of outward fruitlessness and because they were inwardly corrupt. You guys care more about protecting your mechanism than fulfilling your purpose. And as again, I was thinking this week, man, if Jesus was to come back, what would he say about our fruit? our homes, our lives, our churches. Men are so good at boasting our healthy families and our great homes and our productive businesses. We have full sanctuaries. We're running out of parking and parking lots. We have, we have Christians in education and Christians in government. We have pastors writing best-selling books. We have pastors making movies now. I mean, we have all of these great things going on and we get distracted. Are we producing fruit. On the second day of Jesus last week, he began to finish what he started. He went into the temple and what he saw on the first day was outwardly fruitless and inwardly corrupt. On day two, he came in to judge it. And that's not how it ended. Let me finish the last thing. See, and everyone recognized. Look at verse 18. The chief priests and scribes, they heard it. They knew what he was saying. And they began to seek how to destroy him. That term destroy, blow him up, eradicate him, grind him to dust. Like they wanted this guy gone. For they were afraid of him. Look at this. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. That term astonished, mouth agape. Oh. Jesus just eradicated the temple. He just judged and cursed the temple. 
And look what happened, verse 19. See, in 20, that's what gave rights to Peter. Right, look at verse 20. As they were passing in the morning the next day, they saw the fig tree withered up from the roots. Verse 21, being reminded, remembering what Jesus did the day before, he said this, Rabbi, look, the fig tree, you cursed it, you withered it. Hey, if the fig tree is a symbol of Israel and the temple is a symbol of our job, and look how Jesus responded. Verse 22, Jesus answered and said, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. In other words, Jesus says, don't worry about the temple. Later, he'll say, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the hands and feet of Jesus. Oh, what about the priests? Jesus later say, no, no, you're the priest now. You do it. I love how the apostle Peter summarized it to the early church. He said this in the book of 1 Peter. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy before, but now you have. Now you want to understand about the second day of the last week of Jesus? I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there's so much depth and power in this last week. First day, everyone recognized Jesus as the Messiah, but they misunderstood his plan. Boy, did they. Jesus shows up the second day. He starts cursing and eradicating and judging fruitless and corrupt worship. And I think it's important for us today to recognize and ask the question, if Jesus came back, as we always pray that he will and he does and we're expecting him to do so. What will he see? What fruit is being produced in your life? What love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control is evident in your home? Man, the church, not just our church, churches of the Chino Valley, churches of America, Man, what are we focused on? Do we protect the institution? Do we celebrate a superhero? Or do we focus on what God focuses on? Fruit, inward and outward. This week, the last week of Jesus, we begin to get a clearer picture of what's important to God and what ought to be important to us question is do we need to be more focused on fruit as a ministry and as an individual I'd like to ask you to wrestle with that this week let's pray Jesus as a church we confess to you it's so easy to be distracted it's so easy to lose focus 
God, we, we just get busy in life with our families, with our children, with our grandchildren. We get overwhelmed with work. We get buried in finances. We get concerned about culture. And next thing we know, we've taken our eyes off of what you have saved us for and desired to do in our hearts. So God, I pray. You would open our eyes, allow us to see our hearts and souls as you do. God, for those people here who know you, God, we ask, show us areas in our life that are barren, the fruit of the Spirit, professing our faith. God, empower us, exhort us, encourage us, inspire us to be people that reflect your glory, not for our namesake, but for yours. And Father, there's people here today that have yet to see you as I do. God, they're just a tree, leafy, with no fruit whatsoever because they're cut off from you. God, may you open their eyes and allow them to see you as I do. And that they would know about your truth and your power and your desire to forgive, to cleanse them from shame and brokenness. And God, give them boldness and courage to just lift up their failures before you, to acknowledge their sin and their guilt and to receive your free gift. And Jesus, I pray you respond as you've promised you would you'd forgive them of all of their sins, cleanse them from all of their guilt and shame. God, will you give them a peace that's beyond human comprehension as they bring and entrust this to you. And may you fill them with your spirit that will lead them in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. God, we lift all of these, all of these up to you and ask God simply, our desires that you would be pleased with our lives, with our homes, with our churches for your glory, for your kingdom. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.